HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I think we're going to get started. Um, we have Joe Campanell here moderating this panel, and we'll be discussing the trials and tribulations of sourcing organic grapes in the U.S. Um, Joe is from Fausto, uh, and his wine is Anona, so he's very familiar with sourcing organic grapes, and he's going to introduce everyone on the panel and get the discussion started. Just so you know, we will have 15 minutes at the end to answer any questions. If you have questions, we'll have you line up here to make sure that the questions can be repeated in the microphone so everyone can hear. Um, thank you so much, and thank you, Joe. All right, thank you all so much for having me. This is uh, it's actually my first time moderating a panel, so I'm a little nervous, but uh, uh, I'm excited about this topic. Uh, I'm excited about uh, the panelists, and I'm really excited to have you guys here. So uh, here it goes. Um, as I said, we're going to be doing about uh, 40 minutes or so of uh, uh, questions and uh, discussion, and then at the end we'll have we'll have 15 minutes for a Q&A. So if you could just save your questions to the end. Um, starting at the end, we have Raj Parr, who is a sommelier, winemaker, and author. He's the co-founder of Domaine de la Cote, uh, which is here today, and Sandy in Santa Barbara, California, and Eveningland Vineyards in Dundee, Oregon. He's a three times James Beard Award winner who co-authored The Secrets of the Sommeliers and just recently released the Sommelier's Atlas uh, to Wine, or Atlas of Taste, uh, which I've I'm still working my way through, but it is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, and prior to his current roles, he had a really illustrious career in the restaurant industry as uh, the wine director of the Michael Mina Restaurant Group. Um, so he works with five different growers and uh, for the Santa Barbara project, and then another 10 for the Rajpar Wine Club. So he has a lot of great experience on sourcing organic grapes. Um, in the middle, we have Ryan Sturm uh, of Sturm Wine Company. Um, Ryan Sturm is based, and Sturm Wine Company is based in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, they focus on Riesling. They also have Gewürz, uh, Gruner Veltliner and make great rosé. He has some really epic vineyards. Um, Raj was saying that just one of his vineyards could be the whole seminar. Uh, he works with four different growers, sourcing organic grapes, and four vineyards. And then just to my left, we have Tracy Brandt of Donkey and Goat. Tracy is the proprietor and winemaker at Donkey and Goat Winery, along with her husband, Jared, who does something there. Um, <laughs> 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 I feel like you're in the vineyards more, and he's in the cellar a little more. Is that fair to say? I think we both do. 
Okay, they both do. Uh, they craft their wine from organic and biodynamically farmed grapes uh, uh, in the Sierra Nevada, Mendocino, and Napa. And they actually have a very cool urban winery in Berkeley, California. They were a pioneer for natural winemaking in California and from their first vintages made sure they were sourcing sustainable grapes. Um, Tracy has a lot of great experience on this topic. They work with 10 different growers, 17 vineyards, and 22 different grape varieties. I don't know how you keep those all in check. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't either. Um, so I'm going to first ask for uh, have a question just for the panel. Um, I'd love for each of you to talk about what you look for when you're sourcing grapes. Uh, is it the end style of the wine? Is it uh, a particular vineyard site, a particular grape? What is it the first thing that you're looking for when you're, when you're looking to source grapes? I'll start with Tracy. I mean, for us, it's usually about the relationship. So inspiration might come from a bottle of wine we've tried or from, you know, a place we've discovered. But in California, we're not really discovering new uh, Appalachians, but maybe a new vineyard or something going on. Um, but it quickly kind of comes down to, okay, we want to do something there, but the real question for us, because we don't own the land, is who are we going to do it with? And, you know, for us, we generally are in very long-term relationships. Um, you know, one of our growers we've been with since 2005, another one since 2004, and a smattering of the others are at least five plus, plus years. Yeah, I would say that it ultimately does come down to the people for me as well, even though like site is obviously like one of the most exciting and important things to talk about. But in the business sense, the people obviously are like the most important thing that we have to deal with. And I look for like a couple different things when we are starting a relationship, but one of the most important is to develop a long-term goal with everybody and not every single grower wants to have that. A lot of people just want to sell you grapes. And if I know that immediately, I just I don't want to work with them. But it has to be with somebody who has a long-term goal that we can move towards. And that is by far like the most important thing I look for. Same, same. it's people and, and friendships because end of the day, you know, you only work with people. Sometimes you work with the vineyards you like, and then you realize, you know, later on, okay, maybe I don't want to work with this vineyard again. For, and then you're, like, backtracking, and you know, they'll ask you why. And, you know, you've got to be honest with it. But for the most part, it's, it's the relationship you have uh, with, with people. And, and, you know, life's too short. You've got to work with, you know, people you like and hang out. There's no point being with someone who's, uh, you know, too aggressive or doesn't want to kind of work with you because you still have to work together picking the grapes and oversee the farming. One more that I'm going to ask for the whole panel. We'll start with Raj. Uh, why did you start with this model uh, instead of maybe purchasing a vineyard or purchasing land? I, I'm guessing that that is just a model that would just so capital intensive, but you can talk about why sourcing grapes uh, is, is sort of the way that you guys went. Uh, so we also own vineyards, uh, but we also buy grapes. We started Sandi and we were buying grapes from different vineyards in Santa Barbara County, uh, for sure. Planting a vineyard, uh, so we know when we planted them in the Lakota, and you're pretty much done for your one life. You know, it's, it's you're not going to get that. It's going to. You're lucky if you you know even pay the bank back in within 15 years. Uh, so we know that going in, but so we also have to balance that with grapes you can buy, which is you know because if you work with a good grower, they'll you know give you 
piece of vineyard, acre deal, or, and then, or maximum grapes per ton for the acre, so then you can manage it carefully. Uh, it's completely financial. And also, the other thing is that sometimes you want to work on an old vineyard, and because you plant your own vineyard, sure, but it'll take you 20 years, and by then you're pretty much, you know, pretty much done. So you can find an old vineyard, which is also farming organically. That's just, that's what really is, is a gold mine. And it's tough because everyone, everyone is going for the same kind of same vineyards, or at least. Holy grail. If you see an old vineyard farmed organically, you're like, I got to have that. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And Ryan? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, like, the financial component is, like, the obvious uh, big hurdle. Um, land prices, especially where I'm based now in the Santa Cruz Mountains, because of, you know, the clo like, close proximity to the Bay Area. And Silicon Valley have driven up land prices and uh, vineyard land. The little that there actually is uh, available to buy is, uh, I, I don't know burgundy prices, but it's it just as expensive as a lot of places in the Napa Valley. So it's a humongous constraint where, like Raj was saying, it would take 15, 20, 30 years to even think about that being like paid back at all or having any kind of profitability. So that pretty much is like the biggest like hurdle that uh, you have to think about in, in terms of like balancing your sources from stuff that you can farm or not. So that basic decision or basic uh, financial constraint is why I decided to start leasing vineyards because my focus wanted to be on farming. But to balance that uh, business-wise, you have to source fruit just to have some volume to have a viable business of any kind. And I'd say that most winemakers in California have to start buying fruit because you don't know like how your wines are gonna do in the market. You don't know if anyone's gonna be able to or get excited about what you're doing. And that definitely like narrows your focus into, you know, you wanna mitigate the risk that you are taking by entering this business by just purchasing grapes, especially when you start. Uh, yes, uh, buying a vineyard is a daunting proposition, and my husband and I kind of rolled up our sleeves and started Donkey and Goat on a, a very little amount of savings and a lot of sweat equity, and we never took on a lot of investors, which was, I think, ultimately uh, how we survived doing this, because this was our 15th vintage, and we've never changed the way we make our wines, and in 2004, when we started, I think if we had taken on a lot of investors, we might have been driven to make wines that were not what we wanted to do. Um, so it was really never an option. And, and today, you know, we're settled in the Bay Area. Like Joey said, we have an urban winery. We have two girls. Um, I can't even imagine putting them into a more bucolic country setting right now. Um, someday, I think it's definitely on the horizon. You know, I could see Jared and I buying a vineyard and maybe moving up north a little bit. But the the other upside I think you guys touched on, too, is by working with multiple vineyards and growers, the breadth of our offering is so much more diverse. I mean, I can't fathom a place that I could have Cabernet, Pinot Meunier, Roussan, Marsan, all the things that we work with, all in a single vineyard. So by having you know, different appellations and growers, there's a lot of variety. That comes yeah, Tracy, that was actually my next question for you. <laughs> Sorry. You'd grow 22 different grapes. Uh, I just tried your uh, Pinot Grigio Romato with our GM from Fausto, Caitlin, who's in the, in the back of the room, oh, which nice. is outstanding. Um, how much of that... Uh, 
it seems like that would be a huge upside for this model that you can have a lot of flexibility. If there's something that you're really keen on, you can you can sort of go after it. I know you have experimented over the years a lot as well. So mm -hmm. how, how much does that play into it? You mean the ability to have the variety? Yeah, the ability to have a variety. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty huge, especially, I mean, we do make a lot of grapes and I mean, a lot of wines from a lot of grapes and work with a lot of growers. And, you know, for us, this was kind of a, 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 second, uh, a second path. You know, my husband and I were in technology for years. And one of the things we kind of said to ourselves was, well, if this is going to be our labor of love, if you will, you know, we're not going to necessarily put the same limits we would if we were doing one of our tech companies where all we wanted to do was make money. Because at the end of the day, you don't really make money in the wine industry. You know, you, you make wine, you have fun, there's a huge community. Um, there's a huge gratification of having something that I made that somebody in Norway drinks that I made 10 years ago. I mean, that, there's just a connection there that's just kind of magical, but it's, it's definitely not about money. Raj, can you also talk about that ability to work with a lot of different grapes? I know in your uh, Santa Barbara projects with Sandy and Domaine de la Cote, that's pretty dialed in with your Burgundy grapes. But I believe with your uh, Raj Par Wine Club project, you you know you're experimenting a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's definitely my partner Sashi hates me for this because you know he just makes Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Syrah, and, and I wanted to make other things. So we like said, let's do like four different wines, ended up becoming 12 different wines. Um, so we, I made a list of, like, I want to make a Zinfandel. Okay, where can I buy a ton or two of Zinfandel? Of course, I went to Tegan Pasalacqua's, his vineyard, if I want to get, you know, I want to make Syrah. So I went to, like, you know, what's the vineyard I want? So you approach the vineyard. So I worked backwards. I was lucky to kind of connect the vineyard with the variety I wanted to work with. And, uh, you know, it's been a pretty amazing, amazing uh, year just to kind of watch how you've kind of, I met these people. I want to, for example, I was looking for Napa Valley Merlot. It took me three years to find an organically farmed Napa Valley Merlot vineyard who wants to sell us a ton and a half of grapes. So, you know, and it's a pretty good vineyard in Coombsville. So that connection with, with you know, I have to talk to Steve Mathiason or ask Tegan. They know somebody else, he knows somebody else. And then, and now we are going to we have started a plant and graft vineyards for the wine club so we can have, because it's hard finding, you know, yeah, long-term long -term leases. Some, some do it, but most will just say, oh, one or two years, and we'll see after that. Okay, and I want to uh, pose this to Ryan. So uh, if you can't find an already organically grown vineyard, uh, I believe you've worked with a conventionally grown vineyard and sort of have pushed them in an organic way. Can you, yeah. can you talk about what, what that process is like? Yeah, for sure. I, I would say the majority of the vineyards that I work with now have um, been conventionally farmed in the past and even like one of my, actually the first source I started with, Kick On Ranch in Los Alamos, which is in Santa Barbara County, is about 120 acres planted. About 50 of those acres are leased by a company that uh, does like full mechanized uh, picking of that vineyard. It's about as conventional as conventional gets. There's also, uh, I mean, in, in that same valley, there's something called shale, um, which is uh, a keyword for like natural gas. So within Santa Barbara County, there's like oil and gas like being drilled nearby, in addition to like conventional farming practices that are like predominate in the area. So, um, yeah, I actually look for these because of the variety first, and that's what I started my company with. But that is the opportunity that I have 
to actually make a change in the practices that are being done. And so if you want something to be organic and you work with these growers who are definitely have like a conventional mindset, it's like converting a Republican to being a Democrat. And you start not with like bashing people for their beliefs or coming up with some new creative solution to like change programs across the board. It's like one small change at a time and you kind of reach across the aisle. So at KickOn, we change like the herbicide program first. So we still use an herbicide there, but we switch from Rely and Roundup, which are conventional systemic herbicides, to using a milk derivative called Suppress that is organically certified. And that's a little bit less harsh or a lot less harsh than something like glyphosate that gets into the water supply. Um, in addition to changing like the fungicide sprays from things like Millstop and Freeway, which are also you don't have to spray as much and they're cheaper and that's really like why people are conventional, it's like the, the cost. But uh, switch, the, switch those to like dusting sulfur and stylet oil and those small changes add up and really like turn into a catalyst for change at a place like KickOn where now I can meet with the owner and talk about not just switching my stuff like completely to organic but the whole block or the entire vineyard and which is like the long-term goal that we have out there. But I absolutely look for opportunity in people and for, first when I'm looking at vineyards and that is way outside of like the variety context and now I just look at opportunity per se, not, not just varietal specific. All right, how, how did you judge that that kick-on would be a good, the kick-on vineyard would be a good vineyard to start working with? Was it, uh, did you see some inkling that the, uh, that the grower would be open to change? Uh, was it some old vines? Like, what made you say that this is, this is a fight worth having here? It, well, you know, like, uh, it was just the best reasoning in Santa Barbara County, like, hands down. I had a couple buddies of mine who made it. Uh, Tatomer was yeah, there? Yeah, specifically Graham Tatomer, and I just really liked his wine, and I wanted to make Riesling, and that was, like, the mission that I had at first, and, I mean, that's the reason why I started working with it, for sure. Um, I didn't know immediately that the grower, Jeff Fry, would be open to doing changes, but he also farms organically in a different appellation. Um, you guys got to know that, like, a lot of big growers farm a bunch of different ranches, and they kind of control the crews and everything, because labor is also quite tight, um, depending, on, depending on the appellation that you're working in. Um, Santa Barbara County, tip, like, I'd say 90% of it, is managed by one company. I know that's changed a lot now. You yeah, probably know the specifics of it more. It's probably uh, 80, 80 or 90 now, so a few small ones, but yeah, just a pretty, pretty high number. So, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a completely different set of circumstances, so you, you are forced to work with the grower and have these conversations and like come up with a plan to change. And that is absolutely baby steps. Like we're not, we're not even close to like where I wanna be at KickOn, but that's a moving target and you, you make small changes and over time we can absolutely get closer to what we want to accomplish. One, one more question for you, Ryan. Have yeah. you noticed a change in the wine at Kick-On itself over the years in, in the vineyard, uh, in the vineyard site? Yeah, well, I would say we started doing it in 2016 and that was the first year that I made a Riesling without any added sulfites out there. Um, and I was 
pretty freaked out to make a wine like that. I have a pretty conventional wine background myself. I have a degree in enology from Cal Poly, and you know, obviously that is, we don't learn that in school. Um, that's like a big, a big no-no to make a, basically a brown wine. But uh, yeah, some, something amazing did happen after that. Like, so you know, <laughs> bottle the wine like this. I thought I thought it was dead, and it seemed to have, like, come back from the dead later on with you know no explanation whatsoever to my knowledge, um, and in my experience as to why that happened. But in terms of like the physical changes that you see at the ranch, there's not a lot of difference row to row yet, because I think you do have to make uh, big changes around the whole landscape, it's the entire environment that you are really trying to change to be able to farm in a way that it is like a little bit, you have a little bit less inputs and you, you, can, you can see results better when you apply it to the entire landscape, I would say. Tracy, do you have any anecdotes over the years of trying to convince a farmer to go in a more natural way? I mean, a not necessarily antidotes because, uh, you know, we typically kind of started with that conversation, but we've definitely had, um, you know, there were some vineyards where we were more separated maybe, like this was our section here and this was our section over here, and in between here and there they weren't farming the way we were. Um, so we definitely had some maneuvering and, you know, relationship building to kind of say, well, what if we, you know, horse trade, or what if we graft over this neighboring block and then you graft over my block, and, and you know, there's a lot of people involved to, to make that happen, but, but, it, it, but it has. So we do have kind of segregated blocks if we're not working with a whole vineyard so that um, it's, it's easier. You know, you, you walk in and sometimes you're like, what's that ugly block over there? It's, oh, that's the donkey and goat stuff. You know, the weeds are up and the shoots are kind of a little wild because we kind of sometimes like that on some things. And, you know, it, it, it's just a little different sometimes. Um, Are you often uh, farming, or do you have them farming your natural or organic vineyard next to a very conventional vineyard? How much crossover is there? I don't know that there's any that are next to like a like a you know big time hazmat spraying. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the bigger things when you're trying to get growers off, you know, to kind of move out of more of a I'm sustainable except for weeds. Um, because Roundup is often put in the drip line, so it's not like it's flying all over the place. I mean, it's, it's, it's going straight into the soil right under that vine. So if you're in a neighboring section, I mean, it's not really impacting. It's not like it's just catching in the wind and such. Um, not sprayed by helicopter. No, no. 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 Okay, good. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Raj, what do you find as some of the, the challenges of this model of uh, keeping in touch with multiple different growers and making sure they're, they're farming in the way that you'd like? <laughs> the easiest thing is to find the vineyard, which is already doing it, of course. That's hard, but to, to have them convince, I mean, as, as Ram was saying, is first you have to you know, get them off the weed killers. That's, that, it really is the big problem. Um, and, but to connect with them and many of the, the old school farmers, that's just the philosophy. And, you know, it's, and then once that's off, then you can kind of, you know, you know, sprays, programs, you can kind of convince them. It's also cost-wise, depending on where you are, um, it's, what, 20% more and around there. So if you can convince, uh, it's best to convince the owner of the vineyard rather than the grower, but sometimes you can't even meet the owner because if it's somebody's, you know, if it's owned by some corporation or some wealthy individual, so 
I, I guess, but if you, the first, if the owner buys into your idea, because then you can, you know, you can tell them examples, but the growers. It seems like if you say, I'll pay 20% more, that should be convincing enough. To the owner, that's correct. But, but the grower, you tell them that, but then the grower's thinking, okay, I have to work. You, you know, your crew, um, it depends if you have only have like, you know, one acre, that means he has to have a crew, especially going more times in the vineyard. Because, I mean, when you have like, you know, synthetics, you just go, you got, you're going in, and then you, that's it for the extra year. You don't know anything else. Uh, synthetic spray also, it's like if you're, if you're going with a, you know, crazy fungicide, it's like, it's, it's nuked, it's finished. I mean, it's a very common thing in Burgundy also. It's like, like one strong spray, even if you're practicing organic, one strong spray to kind of, and then you, you're starting, you know, at a, at a, at a different level. So, so to convince them to that also is, it's easier if you, for the 20%, first of all, the 20%, you know, the, the roundup, once you kill that, then it's easy to convince them to change. But before that, it's, so yeah. it's, it's just a lot more manual work. Yeah, in it, more in times in the vineyard. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily... I mean, it's it's not more complex of a formula for them when they have to figure out, okay, now I need another crew for another yeah, but, couple of days. But, but then if the grower can convince the owner that, okay, you can, I'm going you know, to charge you 20, 20% more, whatever, and you can charge more for the grapes. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it's slowly happening. It's, it's, very, it's a very slow process. It's, 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 uh, it's, there's a lot of old school farmers who, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't even do it just because they just, they own, not own money, but it's, you know. I think Tracy yeah, has something to say. I was going to add it. something that was interesting to me a few years ago. We were looking at a vineyard um, and they were still using drip line roundup application. And I was like, well, you know, because nowadays there's a lot of different, um, we call it a French plow, but it's an attachment to the tractor that can go in and, and basically cut the weeds and not the vine. And they're, they're way more obtainable. They're not as expensive, et cetera. There's more flavors out there. Um, and so we're like, well, why don't you just, you know, you've got a relatively flat vineyard. You could, you know, get this thing. Blah, blah. And he's like, well, look at my irrigation line. So the irrigation line was on the ground. So that would be thousands and thousands of dollars to get the irrigation line up. He's not willing to, to move to dry farm, too. And I was like, well, what about hand hoeing? He happened to be in a place where, like, the, again, the labor. The labor wasn't there because if you're hand hoeing, yeah, way more humans are going in that vineyard way more times. So sometimes it is even like they don't want to do it or money's not, it's, it's more like all these other little logistics that then start to kind of feel overwhelming. And have you found that you have the, that same challenge with trying to convince a grower or an owner? Like what are, what are those initial meetings like where you say, oh, I have, you have some cool old mandoose that I want to work with <laughs> or something well, we like that. We don't really, I mean, if this, we don't really go, like, if we're going to talk to somebody, they're kind of already farming the way we want. Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like we just yeah, don't go for really it anymore. That's like, it's very, I mean, we've convinced a few people over the years, but it's super hard. I mean, it's like, you could, it could take you 10 years to kind of, but that's why you got to just go and yeah. uh, find people who would actually do it and then be ready to pay more money. And, 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 and that's just, I think, in the end, that is more successful for a short, like, if, if you have 20 years, maybe convince one person to, but, you know, why waste time for 20 years when you can just find the right vineyard and say, I'll pay you more money. Now, Raj, how do you, how do you ensure that they're growing the way that you want them to do after you've had this conversation, after they've been doing it for 20 years, or, or, and or you're, you not, mean, you're not... Oh, you mean, like, uh, what the, like, 
if they're sneaking a, a yeah how do you know are, are they are they sneaking a little extra you know something well, to make their lives easier well I, I you know i haven't checked that in the the new vineyards we work with because they're all mostly all friends but uh there's uh, a report which is open it's called pesticide use report which is available to anyone can go to any county and it's it's a kind of a massive excel which is not easy to kind of maneuver but you also have to, and also the big problem that is that they state vineyards for example at Domaine de la Côte we have a little vineyard which we don't we've leased up we don't use it for the wine and you know one year we had to use pristine and, and then we, when someone saw a report in fact someone saw a report for Ron that oh you, you use pristine in this 3.84 yeah but that's not a part of the state that's you know we sell those grapes and lease the vineyard out uh, so but you can look at that from the county and it's pretty detailed. I mean, you, by law, you have, to, you have to state what you're using, what's going in the ground. So you can pretty much, what's that? Monthly. Monthly, yeah, monthly, yeah. Monthly, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so that's something which is, uh, if someone really wants to kind of go in and see who's actually saying the right thing, you can check that out. And uh, in, the, in Oregon, it's not. They don't, yes, yeah, I just found out recently in Oregon, they don't have that. Oh, just California. Just California. So, I, I don't know if New York State and other states, but Oregon does not have that thing. So. Okay. So, other than pesticides, are there other uh, questions that you have in talking about, oh, yeah. or are there other? Of course. Yeah. Like, uh, do, of you, course. do you talk I mean, to them about uh, drip irrigation or doing things manually versus tractors? But it's very hard to, like, irrigation is something which you is unless you're there. Luckily, if you're if your vineyard is right by where you're living or you're driving through, you're seeing it. But uh, uh, of course, you you know, you, you, the closer you are to the vineyard, the easier it is. The further away, harder it is, because sometimes you can get there. So that's uh, yeah, that's that's how often you go and and go to the vineyard and see what they're doing in the vineyard. Uh, so I think yeah, Ryan, the, I would say the the most basic thing too is like. A lot of, you'd be actually shocked at how many winemakers don't even have a conversation with the grower at all. They just pick up the fruit at the end of the year and that's just the routine. And there's a lot of winemakers that are really comfortable with that. Um, but it's, it's, it's just so much, it's like so much about like communication and like keeping that up every year. And it's the more communication that you have, like the more flexibility that you have in helping push change and not like not necessarily changing people but just changing the practices that are done you know you're not really changing people so but what sort of communication are you hoping the growers give you uh, besides shooting the shit um, um, the communication you got to ask the tough questions you know you want to you want to know exactly what is done you want to hear how they react to tough questions when you ask them like I want to you know I have a goal of you know farming biodynamically down here because we want to see how good of a wine that we can make and you got to get them interested in that goal also and if there is any interest in that like beyond just selling the grapes you know that you have some flexibility with them to push towards that that goal and it is absolutely like a moving target you know one of the things with us is our growers um kind of assume ownership on the wines that come from the vineyard in a very cool way. You know, like, how's my, how's my barrel or how are my barrels or, you know, uh, when do I get, you know, my wine this year? And they very proudly share, you know, we always give our growers wine. They always share the wines with, 
with their friends and, and depending on whether they're just a farmer kind of dabbling and making wine, depends on you know, how connected I guess they are on like this side of the business. But um, so we get calls like even with water, like, yay, we're, you know, especially once you have fruit. I mean, it's like, hey, you know, it's really hot. You know, we're thinking about what do you think? Do you want to do it? Um, so for us, it, we are lucky in that, you know, ours really are at this juncture, you know, pretty decent to very long-term par partnerships. So, I mean, it's just a text or a phone call to, hey, this is what the thing is, what do you want to do? So at this point, Tracy, are you looking for additional vineyards, additional grapes, so you're pretty happy <laughs> with uh, 22 My different My account would varieties. say, hell no. Um, uh, yeah, not, I mean, there's, uh, actually, I'm still looking for Merlot. Um, uh, I lost a Merlot vineyard in 14 that we used to lease, yeah. and uh, I've never found a, did everyone graft Merlot over to Pinot Noir after Sideways, or you know, is, and yes. now it's kind of coming back? I, I, think, I think they've grafted a lot to Cabernet and Cabernet Franc and stuff. It's, I mean, but there used to be Merlot in the Anderson Valley, and that's where my Merlot was. And yeah, a lot of that was grafted to, to Pinot after Sideways. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, well, do you think that, uh, okay, let's ask Ryan also, it, are you looking for any additional vineyards at this point? Yeah, I do for sure. Yeah. Um, but most of my financial resources and time is devoted to far, like farming what I have in the Santa Cruz Mountains now, which is like way outside of like the varieties I intentionally like started out with. So like I lease eight acres of Pinot, Chardonnay, and Cabernet that yield just about nothing. Um, like where I, I source from about eight or nine acres total from all my other growers and I get 85% of my volume in 2018 was sourced and 15% was stuff that I grew and the acreage was about the same. So you can see how like piss poor uh, the yields are when you're taking over stuff that either hasn't been pruned in a couple years or has severe eutypha or Pierce's disease. So uh, I'm absolutely looking for more acreage because it's like I gotta I gotta balance it out and have more of my own production because that's what I view as my long-term stability. So you, you view your long-term stability uh, stuff farming your own vineyards as yeah for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's so. just from a financial and a business standpoint, it makes the most sense. It just the volume is not quite there yet to support uh, like only using my own fruit. Yeah, leasing. I mean that. I mean I think. If someone like if you find if we found a little three little vineyards planted by someone who farmed another vineyard for us and it was own rooted Pinot Noir uh, farmed organically planted in 07 and we quickly just said okay we'll you know we'll take it over and then we're gonna we we've, we've planted some Menthia and some Mondus and and uh, Gamay and then next year some other fun varieties because. It's like you can't find a vineyard which is uh, organically planted already and has been from day one and that has varieties you want. So if you can find something like that, I think that's like really an experience that you can, because in the end of the day, if you want to make like the wine you want to make, you have to control the vineyard. I mean, if it's an obscure variety, you know, you have to control it to the way you want to control from the plant material to the wine, because honestly, a third of the wine is the plant material. A third of the wine is the farming. A third of the wine is the vinification. You can change the percentages in different ways, but the plant material is so important, and and how we take care of it 
uh, is also. Tracy, do you see sourcing as being uh, uh, continued the predominant part of your business, business, or do you think you'll move towards leasing more vineyards as well? Well, some of our arrangements are really leases. Um, so, yeah, I, I may not have specified that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like in the foothills um, where half our production is, uh, I like just working with Ron Mansfield, you know, and so he leases the vineyards and does a whole bunch of different stuff. I mean, Raj works with Ron too. He's amazing. Um, so I don't need to get in there and lease from the various landowners that he knows. You know what I mean? It's just, it's easier. Uh, the, the stuff that we have leased is really more North Coast. And if something really uh, amazing presented itself, I'm sure we would we'd go for it. I mean, right now we're kind of, we just made almost 9,000 cases. So I think we're okay to hold for yeah. a little while. Yeah. yeah. It was a big year. Is that your biggest year today? Oh yeah, yeah. We were we were expecting about seven thousand cases worth. I just always translate, and it was a, a plentiful year in the North Coast. So, yeah. Have have uh, I'll put this to the panel, but have recent sort of weather patterns in California affected made it more difficult or easier to to find organically grown grapes? Well, yes. Um, I think one of the so I was going to talk about the big crop, so we've had big crops in California for the last two years. And prior to that, we had, what, five years of drought? And what was interesting in some of the Appalachians we work in as we were coming at, to the end of those drought years um, was I, I was seeing and hearing about vineyards um, that were not organic moving to organic because they were realizing that the moisture content in the soil, um, the soil maintains more moisture if it's farmed organically. So it was like, hey, you know, the, the stress of the climate is going to drive some vineyards to convert where other market forces and desirability wasn't. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's absolutely, I think, a lot more people interested in uh, sourcing organic fruit, whether or not they're making natural wine with it now. But there's a lot more brands that have started, I would say, like including me over the last, like, five, six years, but even, I mean, there's new brands that pop, like pop up every year. So there's, there's a humongous renewed interest in like, especially just sourcing fruit that is organic because of the difficulties that everybody has in, uh, you know, planting something that they really want to have. You know, it's just like a, a far-fetched reality that does not exist. I saw the weather pattern uh, question. It's, yeah, it's been a unusual year. Last two years for Chardonnay, because like Pinot Noir is the finicky one which has the most mildew pressure, and we've had serious issues with Chardonnay in the last two years, which is kind of funny because you expect that Pinot is going to give you issues, and yeah, and it's been unusually cold where we are down there. We had uh, one day above 90 degrees, uh, so definitely the weather patterns have, you know, you change a lot of. A lot of things in the vineyard and things you don't know and things you experiment on and then the next year it changes again so that's been interesting i'll put this out to the group as well um anyone who'd like to take it have you found that you're uh having to compete with other people uh other winemakers looking to to or increasingly having to compete with people looking for these high quality organic grapes is there more competition are people trying to get up you know, bid up the, the, the good vineyards? There's definitely more people out there, yes, for sure. Um, and that kind of goes back, to, and there's definitely people out there that are willing to, to, you know, come in and say, I'll write you a check, just tell me a number, 
to take over X. And back to, I think all of us were talking earlier about the importance of the relationship. So if you're in a long-term relationship with someone that you have you know, become partners and friends with, you know, when somebody else walks in the door and is like, all right, you check for the you know, block over there that Ryan's working with, they're not gonna budge. And that's, you know, I think why, again, the relationship matters. It, it happened to us, we, our vineyard Seven Springs is farmed uh, biodynamically and, and one of our, you know, they want Chardonnay and he'll, oh, I'll, I'll just take it all and sign a 10 year lease and, you know, it's just tough. It's just, you know, it's like as a, you know, as a grower of, uh, of, of, you know, Chardonnay is like tough to find in Oregon to start with and also farmed organically, biodynamically. It's, you know, we just can't just say, oh yeah, take it all. What if we want to use it ourselves in three years or five years? You know, of course you can, you can have the grapes now. So it's, as a grower, it's difficult just to kind of say, you know, yeah, you can just have it because it is easy just to kind of say, oh, I can take the four acres and, you know, we don't need it. But you also have to make your own wine, so. How do you think about your agreements with the growers? Is it a 10-year, a five-year, a one-year agreement? Is it different with everyone? We, we do one year just, just because it's, you know, yeah, just kind of keep it loose. You know? but, but, it, but we know everyone. It's, it's, not, it's not if we have to, someone is going to cut someone off, we're going to let them know in advance. Mm -hmm. I imagine it gives you some flexibility if for some reason that vineyard or that grower is underperforming too. You can say, I don't need to work with them next year. Yeah. Yeah, the same. Do you sort of do the same thing year by year? Kind of. I mean, we definitely have some that are, like when we've done planting contracts, so to speak, um, where you kind of commit to, to do, you know, we're going to plant, it takes five years before you're going to make any wine, and, and, you know, so you do bigger commitments there. Um, but we, I'd say we check in every year. I mean, honestly, we haven't had a lot of contracts. I mean, usually it's, it's to help my tired, pathetic memory to remember like, you know, what was that price this year and how much did you have me down for um, and that sort of thing. So we do check in every year, you know. So what are you thinking, are you, you know, and often it's, what are you thinking, I might have this new thing going on here, would you want to plant? If so, what do you want to plant? And then that whole, you know, dialogue usually takes a couple years before you're actually planting and so every year you kind of have that conversation. That's where we need to start saying no, yeah. Say so, yeah. Kind of have a similar approach to Raj, where you're working with anybody new, you want a like a one-year agreement, but flexibility and security are ultimately like two of the most important decisions in a, any contract. And having options to go like long-term is absolutely something that is important because that is your security. If you are going to be making changes, especially in the organic direction, there's going to be a lot more interest in that vineyard from other winemakers as well and it's you want the the added security of being able to work with it in, in the future I mean it's clear to me what the grower can do to have a good relationship with all of you guys um, but what is there anything that you can do to keep fostering that that good relationship with the grower so that at the end of the year uh, at the end of the contract if they do get a better offer they, they're like you know what Ryan's awesome. Tracy's awesome. Raj is awesome. I, I want to keep working with them. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> the, there was a, like a situation I had last year where um, uh, one of my growers, Pat Wurz in the Cienega Valley, uh, old, old school farmer, he had about three tons of Zin that he wanted to give me. And over, the, over one weekend on Labor Day, we had a 
pretty horrendous heat spike, and the grapes went from 18 to about 32 bricks. Um, and I, I bought it, and I bought it all. Uh, and it's, it was one of those decisions where you, you work with somebody like that, and you take a risk with them, and you know the next year they're gonna help you out and be supportive, and gave me great options on repaying them and some flexibility in that, and that's one of those decisions where you absolutely, yeah, take on, take on something, you know, that they're struggling with, and you're gonna get that favor, like, returned to you at some point down the line. Um, and the wine turned out fine. I did have to add a lot of water to it, but it, it, did, it did finish fermentation finally. All right, uh, on that note, we're gonna open up the floor to any questions. If anyone would like to, uh, to ask a question, you can sort of stand up, I guess, and uh, we'll give you the mic. Yeah, if you can come up here. So it's kind of more about supporting organic agriculture, and just I'm really interested in your personal reasons of why you support it, and if you eat organic. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, sometimes when I'm in positions like this to speak about what we do, I'll get on my high horse and say, you know, we, we care, you know, us in this natural wine, you know, community, we care a lot about the planet. We care a lot about our bodies. And, you know, uh, and another one I like to say is when we, we're trying to get as, as separated, if not divorced, from the petrochemical industry as we possibly can. Um, and we, I, my family, I, I, uh, we personally definitely eat bi, uh, biodynamic and organic and um, buy from farmers. Like we have a full belly farm, we're in their CSA, and, you know, we live in Berkeley. so. We have this place called the Monterey Market where I actually get to buy my produce based on the farm that brought it in. And so, so yes. Uh, yeah, and besides when I'm traveling, I eat 100% organic at home and grow as much as I possibly can. So, yeah, without a doubt. Yes, same in Santa Barbara. I got a pretty awesome market. You go to farms. We also have uh, uh, things growing in our vineyard. We have sheep and uh, the cattle in the vineyard, so we grow as much as we can during the summer months and then the rest of farmer's market in Santa Barbara right in the town. Anyone else? Any questions? No? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, so you're saying like on average, right, it's obviously really hard to generalize every varietal and every nook of California, but, um, you're saying it's like 20% more, maybe? Yeah, 15, 20%, yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, the cost of farming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you work that in? Is that just in general? Do you guys have like a 20% markup? Well, therein lies a little bit of a yeah, uh, it's like juxtaposition, because when you talk about organic food at the market, the organic, you know, strawberries are way more expensive than the organic, I mean, the conventional. And you talk about wines in this realm, and I have no idea why it is upside down. It would be wonderful for me, personally, if it wasn't. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean the, the, to answer your question directly is, so if you convince a farmer to convert from conventional to organic, you, 
the, the first, maybe one of the first questions would be, oh, it's more expensive. Then you say, okay, I'll pay you more what it's going to cost you. So that process is more towards the grower, maybe not the owner of the vineyard, but not always do they listen to you. So that's why we have to go the other route and find a vineyard which is already organic, and they already have a price. Like, you know, they already... California, it's like a fixed price. It's a fixed like price. Here in, like upstate, it's like you can recommend a price, and the state oh, can no, no. say like. No, but they, like ultimately, fixed. you guys buying, you're giving the price. So California, it's like super fixed. It's like grower. Oh yeah, it's it's I mean, it's, it's fixed per it. grower, but also yeah. the market like you you can also there's also surveys and what the average price was. I mean, in California, right. it's a, it's it's a massive industry and billions, and and so they. Everything is recorded, and you can also go into the, uh, I guess, what, we're in November now? Not yet, but maybe by end of December, they'll have the stats for this year already ready to go right. of what the average price of every county in the entire state, what grape variety, what the average mean price was. Right. And the outliers, too. You can find all the data for, like, you know, the, you can see the most expensive fruit in the nation to the cheapest, you know, in that grape crush report. It's really detailed. And do they say, like, do they specify organic Biodynamic, okay, no. so, it's just, so it's average, so you're working on average. Yeah, yeah. No, no. And also, we didn't even get that debate of organic or certified, I'm not going to call it a can of worms, certified, not certified, why, da, 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 that could be another five hours of conversation, but the price is just that, the, the next level, you have to just, you know, deal, deal directly with, with the grower and kind of, and uh, yeah. Um, what do you see is the best catalyst to uh, increase um, uh, more organic biodynamic farms in the U.S.? Like, uh, is it starting with educating consumers, lawmakers, growers, um, all of the above? Um, what do you personally see is the best catalyst? Uh, probably just leading by example. You know, you have a small sphere of influence in your, your daily life, and I think that all of us coming to events like this is like, maybe there is a, a bit of a bubble in this crowd. People are already like pretty psyched on this stuff, but ultimately, um, we're gonna like to reach like a broader audience is you know, getting outside of this kind of bubble and spending time with people who don't see eye to eye with you, but opening, opening them up at least to your world and how you view things uh, on a very small scale, like step by step is the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, and we also in New York and California, the, it's completely different. I have spent time in the middle part of the country and it's, the word doesn't really even exist. So it's, I think I had to start from every, traveling and talking about it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's just word of mouth. And I think, of course, consumer is the most important part of it. And, and if you can make good wine and translate the good wine to the viticulture or the growing of anything, vegetables and tomato or whatever case, maybe I think that is the biggest, biggest. And events like this is definitely, you know, helps the cause and kind of promotes the idea of eating and drinking the right way. What's um what's the collective view on certifications and whether it's worth the cost or not and maybe from a marketing standpoint too whether you think the end consumer cares? <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> um, 
I do think the end consumer cares, especially when you think about, you know, food in general. Um, I mean, you know, I buy because it says it's certified organic, um, unless I know the farm, right, and you know what they're doing. Um, but the certification, you know, especially for folks like us that have multitude of vineyards we're working with that have varying degrees of certification, and then, you know, we have our own cellars where we bring it, it it's woefully complicated and difficult in my opinion. I mean, I've, I've never even bothered to try. Like we occasionally will say made with organic grapes or my Demeter certified, I'll say made with that. But even getting that label approved, every time I get beat up by the TTV, the organization that does the labels, I'm like, come on, you've approved this like five years. Why, I really need to show you the certification. So it's just, it's painful. Yeah. Like, I think from a consumer standpoint, um, it is way easier to trust something that just has a label slapped on it. And in that context, it sh like it is important. Um, I, I think from all of our perspective, we view it as it would be conforming to somebody else's rules and playbook to just immediately want to get certified, either you know with Demeter or you know Seacoff or any number of other organizations that do the organic certification process, but. For you know this, you know if you want to call it a movement to go a little bit more mainstream, yeah, I think certifications might have to be a part of it, potentially, for more consumers just to easily jump on board. Well, I think they need to change. They need to make it simpler for us to say, well, you know, here's what's happening in the vineyard, here's what's happening in the cellar. Maybe it's two different certifications, but the the kind of the way the system works right now is just it is. I think woefully complicated and difficult to execute. I mean, in sulfur, like organic certification in Europe allows a little sulfur out, in America it doesn't. So your vineyard's organic and you added 25 parts per million of bottling and you can't say you're not organic in America. So it's, yeah. that's yeah. that, yeah, that sulfur part is completely perplexing. Of if, if they took away the sulfur part of it, I mean, I think it, yeah. it would, I mean, and also in, not to wear in Europe, I mean, just copper is more poisonous than, than a lot of the uh, sprays, which are not organic, so that's a different story. But and that's allowed even in biodynamic farming, um, and which is, I guess, the need for, you know, in a wet, wet environment, so. Yeah, I don't understand the copper either. Hi, everyone. Um, my question is kind of more about the philosophy of what you do. And uh, we got this kind of luxury in New York where we get to represent your wines with ease and tell the story of the new California. Um, and that distance kind of creates this disconnect. How on the fringe do you feel day in and day out with how you approach winemaking and sourcing and uh, your relationships with these farmers? Do you feel still very much like trailblazers, or is this kind of now starting to settle in as a way of life for a lot of uh, your peers? Uh, there's still like not a huge movement of all of us in California. By far the majority of vineyards and farms in the state are farmed conventionally. Um, can you repeat like the last part of your question actually? Sure. Okay. Um, Oh, oh, and you and you were asking about the eth like your like our like philo like philosophy behind it a little bit. Sure. Um, 
I think, it, yeah, it just starts with like, uh, I, I just believe that you want to leave things in a better position than when you started with them or when you found them. And that's really the, uh, the ethos. You know, it's pretty, pretty simple. I grew up in Calcutta and I remember when I was a child, uh, I went to the market every day with my dad. Uh, every day the milkman came with milk he had was still warm from the cows. So when I moved to New York and I saw milk in a carton, kind of freaked me out. I'm like, what's that? So, you know, so the same, like coming back and when you're like, you know, living, you know, living a life even though we kind of ruined the planet by flying so much and promoting this idea. Uh, if you take that out of context, I think that living is, you know, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, living, living in, and believing and eating and then drinking and promoting and writing about or talking about, uh, if it's not your life, it's kind of like, you know, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily a fad, though it could be, but it's all around how we exist every single day of our life. I think I think that's I think that's the inspiration behind and and unfortunately it's it's I mean I see the positive it's, it's growing in California for sure and Oregon it's growing even faster uh, uh, and you know starting from you know polyculture starting from that's one of the things which we don't talk about is like just how much monoculture there is in many of the top wine regions in the world including some California. So if we start talking of that while planting vineyards and growing other things, I think, I think that's also a big part of our lives, so, yeah. Hi there. Uh, I guess I have more of a nuts and bolts question about how uh, with growers or with owners, how insurance or crop insurance might play a role in either the impediment of transforming to organic uh, or if certification helps in that process, or if there's any connection there at all. I guess that's what I wanted to know. Uh, I don't have crop insurance on anything, but it has more to do with your history um, with the vineyard and how much it's produced in the past. So it's a risk mitigation for more like env environmental like emergencies where say you have like fires up in Lake County and you have a, a pretty big vineyard that uh, actually does pay crop insurance those are the kind of places that um, actually reap the benefits of it not like little small mom-and-pop vineyards um, like anywhere especially not small organic ones they don't have well, they just can't get it you know it's like the either the history of the crop isn't there or they don't have the financial resources to make it pencil out or you won't be able to get insurance for it at all you know I think it's more the volume, you know, and the, the type of business yeah, being run. I think a vineyard which is larger, also selling grapes, making wine, you know, but the, but the crop, crop insurance is, as, as a buyer of the, it doesn't really count. It's the, the, the grower, the, the owner of the vineyard, the insurance, like we had an example this year, we had a crazy uh, little uh, heat spike on July 7th and kind of burnt you know, half, 50% of Chenin Blanc, uh, and, you know, the grower had to, you know, had crop insurance, but then they would not crop, this is only a one-acre piece, and they would not uh, look at that, but only if there was a massive, you know, they were looking at crop insurance as, as a bigger piece, not this one acre, it didn't really matter, because it was like, wouldn't, you know, but there was some kind of 
they would only look at bigger vineyards like this 10 acre piece of Syrah or something like that. All right, thank you. Uh, thanks for your questions. Thank you guys so much. Um, go to their tables and go taste their wines. They're all here. So thanks, guys. <laughs>